Afterward. I haven't been enough of a prophetic contrarian in my life to indulge often in such delicious smugness, but here goes. I told you so. Just about every Facebook scoop and scandal that's emerged in the past few months in a very busy Facebook news cycle was previously covered in some chapter or passage of this memoir. Let's recap. The part of the Cambridge Analytica story where they maliciously hoovered in Facebook platform data, platform being the big failed bet the company started making around 2010, discussed along with the accompanying monetization bet in the chapter when the flying saucers failed to appear. The astrological fate that goes into so-called psychographic targeting, yet another angle of the Cambridge Analytica story, appears in The Great Awakening as a mostly pointless brand marketing tool. ProPublica hyperventilating over its scandalous finding that Facebook's interest-targeting tool includes a few bigoted slurs among other pieces of semantic rubbish? Given this was my first product launch at Facebook, it's covered in detail in Leaping Headlong. The somewhat misplaced hubbub around Russian troll farms buying and targeting ads aimed at U.S. voters? The system of ads policing that Facebook employs, using a judicious mix of human eyeballs and software, which I briefly led, is explained in stultifying detail in Ads 5.0. The revelation during Zuckerberg's congressional testimony of how little he really seemed to know or care about the company's business or legal side, discussed at length in Google Delenda Est. Even the venerable Wall Street Journal breathlessly reported the juicy bit about how Facebook employees are allowed to ask each other out once before being dragged to HR jail, see boot camp. So what exactly happened between the initial publication of Chaos Monkeys and the edition you're holding? What's all this Cambridge Analytica noise, and it is largely noise, about? Cambridge Analytica, like so many other companies, is a parasitic facilitator that sits at the fringes of Facebook's walled garden and offers services to those who'd like to access Facebook's users but don't really know how to go about getting in. Since they're mostly glib middlemen, as are many such facilitators, they approached a Cambridge University Research Center that had done some academic work on profiling Facebook users via polls. The precise details are still unclear, but they effectively bribed a researcher to launch another user poll on Facebook's platform. Like the iPhone App Store, Facebook allows third-party developers to run apps on Facebook and build a political affinity model based on those poll answers. By answering a series of questions, something like 300,000 Facebook users were profiled according to a current academic personality model. Cambridge Analytica also exploited Facebook's rather loose control on platform data, and sucked in the Facebook user data of everyone responding to the poll, as well as their friends. The point of all this model-building and data-stealing was to identify what sort of Facebook user had certain political inclinations. Armed with user profile data, Cambridge Analytica could then attempt to figure out how to target them via the ad system. Get that? It's suckering users into taking a poll and giving an outsider permission to access their data, sucking in their data, matching that against the user's revealed political preferences, and then using the stolen Facebook profile data to target them via ads. Let's back up for a moment before we jump to conspiracy theorizing. This sort of targeting, again, is known as psychographics and possesses little in the way of empirical backing. Whatever horoscope they produced for every user based on their poll answers, the personality model had factors like extroversion and neuroticism. They then had to associate neuroticism with, say, being pro-Trump, and somehow go target ads to neurotic people based on their Facebook profiles. It's a model based on a model of a model, estimations all the way down. The careful readers of the chapter One Shot, One Kill will remember how difficult it is to target any concrete user interest. For example, I want to buy a BMW, much less diffuse abstractions like personality. What's more, Cambridge Analytica also had a relatively small fraction of Trump's total media budget, which didn't keep the smug Brits in their sharp suits from hyping their abilities beyond even the hyperbolic dreams of Silicon Valley. In ad tech, it doesn't have to work for you to be able to sell it. Was Facebook to blame in this whole Cambridge saga? Yes, in more ways than one. Reportedly, they'd known about the siphoning of Facebook's platform data as early as 2015, but rather than boot the company at once, they accepted an assurance that any user data had been deleted. 
Clearly, this was not the case. Also, more broadly, Facebook should have locked down their platform much earlier. As I detailed in Chaos Monkeys, the Facebook platform bet was a failed one and no longer held much value for either the company or users. Mind you, any time an open platform with user data opens itself to third-party developers, there's leakage of data. Consider for a moment your smartphone. See every app icon on there? I bet many of them, if not most, violate Apple's or Google's terms of service. And either accidentally or very willfully, there's a thriving secondary market in mobile targeting data, violate your privacy in various ways. Think of that the next time you OK the app accessing your contacts or location. But a thriving ecosystem of novel app functionality, Uber, Airbnb, Snapchat, Facebook itself, justifies the risk of accidental or malicious data leakage. Facebook's platform never had that upside, as nobody since Spotify, with its long-ago, your friend is listening to, newsfeed posts has really used it. Facebook should have locked it down long ago, and shame on them for slacking. Footnote. As of this writing, and in reaction to the ongoing scandal, Facebook has announced that it's doing just that. Third-party access to user data will be sharply curtailed. Already, some researchers and developers are complaining that now Facebook really is a walled garden, while the company should really share. This proves the universal law of Facebook policy reaction. No matter which of two roads they take, there will be a chorus of complainers heckling them the whole way. End footnote. So, how did Trump actually win? My best guess, which was confirmed by leaks from Facebook and claims by the Trump marketing team, is that Trump was just better at Facebook marketing. Brad Parscale, the man most responsible for Trump's Facebook efforts, has publicly said they made extensive use of both the targeting abilities of custom audiences and whatever first-party data was made available to them via the GOP political machine, as well as whatever third-party data they could buy from data brokers. In other words, they did like every Amazon or Zappos or REI in the world and relentlessly used and recycled whatever data they had on their users, which in the case of politics is donors and voters. Additionally, the Trump campaign used a popular though little-known Facebook product called Lookalike Audiences. This tool takes a seed custom audience you've provided and using the Facebook social graph and what Facebook knows about the similarities among users expands that seed set of users to a larger one. The idea here is that anyone who resembles you on Facebook probably also shares your consumer tastes. Thus, if Bed Bath & Beyond, say, knows you're into fancy bathroom towels, or the GOP knows you're into Trump, users who look alike you, according to Facebook, are likely to have those tastes as well. By and large, it seems to work and is very popular among advertisers of all stripes. In addition, according to an internal Facebook report uncovered by Bloomberg, the Trump campaign ran almost 6 million different ads during the campaign, while Clinton ran 100th that number. Like a canny marketer hyper-tuning its message to every consumer, the Trump campaign was iteratively testing ad creative to find the most compelling patch of pixels to throw in your newsfeed. In the memorable words of Trump's digital man, Parscale, I always wonder why people in politics act like this stuff is so mystical. It's the same shit we use in commercial, just as fancier names. In short, Trump outmarketed Clinton, and badly. But what about the Russian trolls and the Internet Research Agency? From Facebook's numbers, the ad budget the IRA employed, around $100,000, was minuscule by Internet marketing standards. You couldn't sell a pack of chewing gum for that. On the organic, non-ad side, the Russians and their propaganda got more distribution, and the numbers can seem impressive, without actually being so. Remember, Facebook is billions of users looking at hundreds of pieces of content a day, resulting in trillions of posts per year. Even Facebook conceding that something like hundreds of millions of posts were generated doesn't amount to much of a percentage of total Facebook media during the election cycle. To further confuse things, the fallacious reasoning most observers employ is to consider the number of votes that decided victory in some swing county of a swing state like Ohio, something on the order of tens of thousands, and then compare that to Facebook's reach numbers. They then imagine fantastical scenarios where Trump surgically convinced just the right voters to tip the whole thing. 
That's like looking at two evenly matched marathon runners who've been neck and neck for 26 miles, exerting themselves heroically the entire route. When one happens to finally win by a second, you claim, see, if you just pushed a bit more in that second, you would have won, ignoring the two-plus hours of grind that got the winner within a second of victory to begin with. Just so stories about having perfectly reached just the right users are so much make-believe. They're also chronologically backwards. Nobody knew who those magic handful of voters in some small county were before the election, so there's no way you could have targeted them from the get-go. But this is what happens when an amateur commentariat suddenly develops opinions about the complexities of a field like ads targeting they've previously ignored. What's most amusing about this brouhaha, whether the boogeyman is the IRA or Cambridge Analytica, is that the people who seem to know least about ads are the most prepared to believe in the supernatural powers of advertising, while those who know most about ads, such as actual practitioners, are the most skeptical of the magic bullet claims by outfits like Cambridge Analytica. Ultimately, Trump won because more people were willing to share his message for free on Facebook ungoated by any shifty Russians, and he was able to use the tried-and-true Facebook advertising tools to win. It was that simple. In retrospect, and with the Facebook bomb now well detonated, I realized two things about the timing of Chaos Monkeys. One, in 2016, most people, including and especially mainstream journalists, weren't armed with the Facebook context to even ask the questions that Chaos Monkeys so fulsomely answered. Two, they had no interest in learning that Facebook context until Trump happened. And to be fair, the one area where chaos monkeys, unfortunately, did not display much prescience is in regard to Facebook's specific impact on politics. Politics just wasn't much on our minds when we were designing what became Facebook's data and targeting roadmap in the harried pre-IPO days of early 2012. Tools like custom audiences, which serve to coalesce all that's commercially known about you around a Facebook user ID, were designed to sell you on shoes and soap, not Trump or Brexit. The anus mirabilis of Facebook advertising, when Facebook shipped all the targeting tools now being widely discussed, and after which they didn't ship much of anything novel, happened to coincide with the previous presidential election. Yet, I have only the vaguest memories of politics ever even getting mentioned as a potential buyer, and this when everyone was desperate to drum up any and all potential advertisers. Politicians were just hopelessly backward and the last major advertiser segment to recognize the power of Facebook. Which brings us to the real crux of the why now behind this Facebook Michigas. The marketing tools and technologies that have been commonplace for years in the commercial world of mobile gaming or e-commerce have finally been adopted by the characteristically laggard political marketers. Specifically, it's been adopted more by one side than the other, and more specifically by the wrong side, at least per the lights of our largely left-leaning media. Footnote it has been noted by more than one conservative commentator that the Obama campaign exploited the Facebook platform in a similar way during the 2012 election. In that case, the Obama campaign enlisted volunteers via Facebook and then sucked in their friends' data, as Cambridge Analytica did, in essence profiling their friends for their political affinities. Rather than put that information toward ads targeting, they used the profiling to goad the Facebook volunteers to convince one or another susceptible friend to vote for Obama. Defenders of the Obama campaign have noted this was a lesser sin, as the Facebook app users knew what they were opting into. A lesser sin, perhaps, but a thoroughly analogous one nonetheless. End footnote. While in the United States, at least, the average consumer, either willfully or unconsciously, yields plenty of leeway to advertisers to do what they must to make a sale, the terms are very different when it concerns putting a deeply unpopular president into office. Capitalism morphs every relationship or avenue of life into a marketing problem. We pump our personal brands to supposed friends on social media and swipe right to find love, or really just hookups, on Tinder. But when the product on sale is a politician, suddenly our enthusiasm for the ritual of consumer capitalism dims a bit. The question of who gets the nuclear football should not be decided lightly. Even Facebook agrees, and in September 2017, Zuckerberg himself announced that Facebook would police political advertisers much more strictly, as well as offer greater disclosure regarding political ads. 
That said, and it'll no doubt sound like the prognostication of a cynical and heartless marketer, perhaps the most lasting effect of the endless Facebook fracas will be a massive boost for Facebook advertisements. With everyone and their mothers screaming that Facebook threw a slew of major elections, the political ad budgets in 2020 will no doubt feature multiples of the anemic spending in 2012 and surpass even the healthy amounts that Trump-Clinton spent in 2016. Whatever regulation might come out of this, and I'd actually favor some in the political realm, the enduring legacy of the great Facebook election scandal of 2016 will be a bigger Facebook political ad sales team cajoling larger budgets out of power-hungry political candidates. By the 2020 election, Facebook will be even more instrumental in determining who rules our political lives. For all that buildup around advertising, I'm now going to pop that bubble. When it comes to Facebook and the possible end of the Western liberal democratic tradition, I don't see ads as the most pressing issue. Ads are ultimately an eminently solvable problem. The number of advertisers compared to the humanity-encompassing user base is relatively small. There are no abstract and sticky free speech principles at stake, and Facebook can act with complete dominion and police its revenue as harshly as it likes. Break our rules? Then fuck off. We close your account. Game us? We can play the arms race better than you. This was more or less the attitude of the ads police when I was at the company, and the FB gumshoes merely have a new beat to cover, and far more resources with which to cover it. Zuck has announced the hiring of 5,000 operations people to better police Facebook, an enormous figure for a company whose ranks numbered less than half that when I joined it in 2011. It's on the organic side that the real Facebook story lies. We as a species have simply internalized certain expectations around customized and targeted media, all the while externalizing our personal lives on that same media. There is no going back. The post-Enlightenment man living in a liberal democracy believes he has a right to an opinion. Post-Facebook, he also believes he has a right to his own reality, an online reality that aims to validate his worldview and bends reality to flatter his prejudices. Cognitive dissonance, perhaps humanity's great cognitive Achilles heel, is the psychological bug whereby we not only reject contrary evidence to a dearly held worldview, we embrace that view even more tightly as a result. Crafting every user a media-safe space is how Facebook grew to half a trillion dollars in value. And it's not clear users, for all their cries of do something, actually want out of that cozy space. But how do we work around a human psychological flaw that'll change at a timescale of evolutionary eons while Facebook pushes new code out every day? Does history hold any lessons? Many, including me, have cited parallels between the printing press and the internet-enabled smartphone. If so, then what is being sparked now is our own 30 years war, a bitter internecine conflict that will leave both the physical and ideological geography marked with one of two colors, and whose initial principled split will be exploited by far more mundane power-grabbing ambitions in due course. Somehow, when Gutenberg and company appeared on the scene, humanity managed to solve the problem of writing and thinking, no longer being the exclusive monopoly of cloistered monks and an anointed clerisy. That solution involved a centuries-long elaboration of norms around editorship, the protocols of scholarly and journalistic truth, and a publishing industry of gatekeepers of varying merit or efficiency. The technological innovation of applying ink to paper via movable type played a key role, but mostly it was the distribution system for moving thinly pressed sheets of pulp trees around the world that set the revolution into motion. Footnote. Like every good techie, I considered going the disruptive self-publishing route with Chaos Monkeys, but soon realized only a big-time New York publisher could perform the ultimate magic, get physical copies on a bookstore shelf. For all our supposed technological sophistication, cradling the weight of a book in our arms imbues it with a more than merely physical heft. For now, at least. End footnote. For all but the loftiest of intellectual elites, that legacy system is now mostly irrelevant. A system like the Internet, however, where any damn fool can have their mutterings transmitted instantly around the world, is a system where every damn fool does just that, and some very unfoolish opportunists as well. 
The technologist's solution to this news overflow problem is the algorithm, which is just fancy talk for a recipe of logical steps and maybe some math. Since there isn't a chance in hell our brains can parse the jumble of content, part art, part trash, our friends put out, either on Facebook or the wider web, an algorithm sorts it out for us, using our reactions to its initial guesses as further input to inform yet more guessing. The models get updated with new data, and we enter an iterative loop with the world's content as mediated by Google, Facebook, or the like. Every update to the model and its training set offers yet a further freakish bend to the lens through which we view reality, to the point that we can't even remember what it was like seeing the world without customized social media glasses on. Remember tuning into Koppel on Nightline at 10 p.m. Eastern? I vaguely do. We've given these companies license to do this via what I call the algorithmic pass. This is the excuse they've been crafting for something like two decades now, and it goes something like this. We filter the world's information for you, and in exchange, you hold us completely irresponsible for what appears there. If you're seeing something you don't like, or that's illegal, it's this code right here written by those AI nerds over there, cut to shot of nerds in a chic industrial space with Nerf guns, that made you see it. This isn't a mere writerly conceit, it's actual law. The safe harbor provision of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, DMCA, is why companies like YouTube aren't liable for content like ISIS beheading videos or an illegally uploaded and copyrighted Amy Winehouse song. With the tools of content creation readily available to anyone, we hopscotch from the New York Times and its haughty All the News That's Fit to Print to a social media popularity contest where everyone anxiously tries to stay relevant. From the consumption perspective, the fundamental difference between editorial curation and the algorithm is that between idealistic prescription and amoral prediction. An editor is someone who tells you to eat your vegetables and presents you with an expansive piece on the convoluted political and ethnic logic of the Yemen war. Conversely, the algorithm will shovel as much sugar and fat into your mouth as you like, offering up daily doses of media french fries like Kim Kardashian's posterior and the latest contretemps in the Trump telenovela. When even the most dissolute media junkie is glutted via our ever-buzzing phones, we momentarily sober up and demand a return to sanity, particularly if we look up post-binge and see Trump smiling at a presidential podium which is how we arrived at one of the most compelling scenes in the congressional show trial of Zuckerberg and Facebook in early April. In front of the U.S. Senate, after hours of grilling, Zuckerberg was asked if Facebook felt responsible for the content that its users see on his platform. Zuck instantly hit play on his memorized talking point about Facebook being a tech company. When a senator pressed him more, his talking point veered off the usual script. Zuckerberg. I view us as a tech company because the primary thing that we do is build technology and products. Senator Sullivan, Republican, Arkansas. But you said you're responsible for content, which makes... Zuckerberg. Exactly. Sullivan. you kind of a publisher, right? Zuckerberg. Well, I agree that we're responsible for the content, but we don't produce the content. You could practically feel him reeling at the contradiction implicit in his words plus the years of legal headache he just heaped on the company by delivering this confession in front of the American public. The world was asking Zuckerberg to publicly assume the job he de facto already has, editor-in-chief for the world's media, but which he absolutely does not want, and which we shouldn't want him to have either. This was worlds colliding in a single highly publicized sentence, and somehow this historical train wreck was supposed to improve matters. As I see it, there are only two real solutions to our current impasse, and neither has Zuckerberg becoming the global arbiter of online truth. The first scenario is that a new generation emerges which, weaned almost since birth on touchscreens and fractious digital media, navigates that raucous world with an equanimity that we dinosaurs beholden to a dead tree age find impossible to muster. It'll be a different world, one where the universally acclaimed expert or editor is thoroughly extinct, replaced by a more transitory but also more democratic world of Internet-enabled rumor and hearsay passing itself off as truth, a.k.a. fake news, and arbitrated only by algorithms. In many ways, this is rushing forward to the past. 
Before Gutenberg, most of humanity lived in a non-textual swirl of word of mouth, a media landscape of verbal ephemera and tribal folklore. As always, some prophetic academics have seen this coming, titling this new medievalism secondary orality, or the Gutenberg parenthesis. The idea being Gutenberg opened a parenthesis of textual literate society, and Zuckerberg effectively closed it with Facebook. Footnote. The concept of secondary orality, whereby our new media conversation is actually a reversion to previous pre-literate thought patterns, was formulated by media theorist and Jesuit priest Walter J. Ong, S.J. The notion of the Gutenberg parenthesis is due to Anglo-Danish-English professor Thomas Pettit. Despite, or perhaps even because of, their academic origins, their papers on the topic are highly relevant to our current media transformation and exactly how our Neolithic brains are adapting to a world full of blinking screens. End footnote. Logic, some of the bitter-enders will one day muse, sure was good while it lasted, and then they will go and check Facebook. A more hopeful but less likely scenario is that we collectively decide to stand athwart technology and yell, Stop! We claw our way out of the social media rabbit hole and fill it in behind us as we leave. We junk our smartphones for dumb feature phones, restore the editors and encyclopedists to their reconstructed pedestals, and steer the technological yearnings of our scientists and engineers in another direction. It's unusual in human history, but not completely unheard of. Peter Thiel once quipped, we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters instead, as a wry dismissal of current internet trends, despite having made one of his many fortunes on Facebook. That Jetson's future could be ours again, so long as we figure out how to make inventing that future, rather than the next photo-sharing app, the route to riches and glossy fortune covers. Maybe. As if it isn't clear, I think we're in for the new media medievalism. We're simply too far gone to abandon the course. I recently had to explain to a 20-something what an answering machine was, the big blocky things with two cassette tapes and big plastic buttons when it appeared in an old movie. If I had had to explain what a library card catalog was, or carbon paper, or microfiche, or film cameras, I doubt she would have even believed that such things once existed. No, we've made our bed, and we're lying, if not dying, in it. Logic. It was good while it lasted. Curiously, this never-ending Facebook debate hinges on two related but diametrically opposed topics. The first is the company's impact on our public sphere and the debate and decision-making involved, covered earlier. The other concerns our private sphere, our innermost sanctum of thought and belief. Privacy is an illusion, a societal ruse we constructed only recently. The right to live as a stranger among strangers, with an inviolable sanctity of personal affairs against even government intrusion, is a relatively new concept. As with romantic love, we've situated privacy at the center of our lives, a much-fussed-over necessity that for centuries humanity managed to mostly live without. The word privacy itself doesn't make an appearance in the lexicon under our modern definition until 1814. The first serious legal review of the concept was by Louis Brandeis in 1890 and is now classic The Right to Privacy, which was, curiously enough, spurred by the then-new media of national newspapers and photography. This sudden interest in, and legal defense of, privacy was a result of industrialization, rapidly growing cities, and the fraying of a regional social fabric that once enmeshed, not to mention ensnared, everyone within a set of expectations and possibilities. In the absence of that protective and restrictive fabric, every man required a sanctuary from the increasingly anonymous and policed world to which he'd migrated. However, in the hunter-gatherer tribes where humans evolved, or in the small towns where most Westerners lived until even relatively recently, there was no notion of privacy. If you tried explaining privacy to a Kung tribesman of the Kalahari Desert, or to an 18th-century French villager, they'd have no idea what you were talking about. Meeting a stranger was likely a memorable event, and there was nobody they interacted with for whom they did not have a long oral rap sheet. Most cultures have lived without our current notion of privacy, and most do so even now. All this privacy theorizing came to me by way of an epiphany, 
an epiphany that merits an explanation that will also serve as exposition. The close reader of the acknowledgments section of Chaos Monkeys will have noticed some glowing thanks to the community of Orcas Island, a verdant jewel rising from the cold blue waters of the Salish Sea in far northwestern Washington state. It was to there I retreated to write the memoir, and there where I fell in love with the quirky community, part hippie, part redneck, always interesting, that calls those windswept rocky islands home. With a tight deadline hanging over my head and deep in a Facebook contemplation funk, footnote. At this point, I'm using Facebook like Velcro or Ziploc, a corporate catch-all moniker for a more general phenomenon. Zuck could croak and FB could go the way of MySpace, but I really mean whatever online, virtualized social identity we have. Facebook, virtual reality avatars, whatever. End footnote. I tenuously stepped into the close-knit community, one made even closer by the damp, dark winter. As a suburban Miami kid with the ruthless, itinerant CV of your typical American striver, Midwestern University, Berkeley, New York, San Francisco, Berlin, community was always a shop-worn abstraction cited by politicians or touchy-feely California types. But Orcas was the real thing. My first experience with it, in fact, and coming after years cocooned within the atomized, flaky world of SF tech, where two people sitting ten feet apart message each other via their smartphones. A revelation. Initially, though, I couldn't understand why the islanders didn't seem to use Facebook or even smartphones. Years after leaving Facebook, even after feeling cruelly betrayed for having slaved to make them a mountain of cash in targeting revenue, I still bled blue. To me, daily Facebook usage was tantamount to vitamins or exercise, something everyone needed a bit of every day. But soon it became clear enough. Checking into a bar was automatic. The one you were at was one of two available. Every encounter with someone involved a ten-minute-long recap of everything going on with your mutual friends, an impromptu real-life news feed. There was no privacy. Everyone knew who the drunk, the cheat, or the adulterer was. News flew almost as fast as Wi-Fi signals, and I met complete strangers who'd already gotten the download on who I was and what I was doing there, as one Facebook stalks an online date. What need was there for Facebook? To many city slickers, this description of a rural Elysium might be less than idyllic, suffocating even. The thing is, deep down, we actually hunger for that sense of community, and we'll find an outlet for it no matter what. Even you hard-bitten urbanites have crafted some sense of place out of your set of former classmates and co-workers, almost certainly using social media to fill in any gaps. If a platform can create the feeling of community, and FB is nothing if not an ersatz version, then the lack of privacy is fine. Humans will turn over anything to fill the void of loneliness and existential dread, particularly in a world now teeming with it. If the simulacrum can pass as real, it'll succeed. Ultimately, nobody really cares about privacy, except media elites, underemployed bureaucrats, and zealots who've made it a career. Footnote. It's key to observe what people actually do, not what they claim to value. You know when in the past few months Facebook rose to its highest rank in the Android app store? The day after the hashtag delete Facebook hashtag took off and everyone was signaling their indignant intent to abandon Facebook. They all deleted the app, and duly downloaded it again the next day, like the aspiring quitter buying a carton of cigarettes after one day of cold turkey. End footnote. Everyone else would sext you their privates for a fleeting feeling of human connection. And they do. Turns out, Mark Zuckerberg agrees, though he'd express it more delicately in public. In April of 2017, he published an unusual 6,000-word manifesto that, unlike most of his somewhat bland posts, is worth reading. There, he very immodestly proposes that Facebook occupy the social nexus rendered non-existent by the disappearance of churches, unions, lodges, and other local associations that once served as the core of American civil life. This resurrected public forum would be as abstract and mobile as a Facebook group and would no longer be restricted by the pesky limits of distance or national origin. This Facebook as community proxy is not without its problems, though, and it's where the smartphone version deviates from the real-world version that we encounter our modern pathologies.
First, there's the issue of overuse. Facebook is to real community like porn is to real sex, a cheap digital knockoff for those who can't do better. Unfortunately, in both instances, use of the simulacrum fries your brain in ways that prevent you from ever experiencing the real version again. But we'll take what we can get. Secondly, there's the issue of skin in the game. Footnote. The studious reader will note that, despite my vow in a footnote of Chaos Monkeys to never again do so, here I am quoting the inimitable and insufferable Nicholas Nassim Taleb. End footnote. Social media has turned preening moral vanity, along with online mob repudiation and trolling, into everybody's favorite hobby. But in a real community, words have consequences and must either be followed by actions or require redress in the real world. On Twitter, you don't have to see that guy you called an idiot in the line at the local grocery store or in the school line to pick up your kids. In a real community, you do, and that restrains behavior. The net effect is that while this faux community might be tearing the world apart socially and politically, in the real version, democracy thrives. Which brings us to that feature of the Facebook community that in reality turns out to be a fatal bug, geography. That slim piece of glass, metal, and silicon we keep in our pockets is like our own mobile orcas, the Dunbar's number of people we care about in an easy-to-carry package. Footnote. Dunbar's number is the number of social contacts the human brain is capable of handling and is thought to be around 150 or thereabouts. This theory was posited by British anthropologist Robin Dunbar after studies of both primates and humans. Many studies show that, indeed, whatever total number of Facebook friends we claim to have, our real social circle is still constrained by Dunbar's number. End footnote. But that intangible network exists beyond space or even time. Case file, my deceased Facebook friends, whose presence will be there forever? My made-to-order social network is not necessarily reflective of the other organizations that rule my life, my government, neighborhood, or even nation. In other words, the fault lines of our new online polities run under and through the borders of the old legacy ones. They don't respect the colored boxes on the map, boxes that used to refer to a common set of values, laws, and identities, but no longer do. This whole Facebook fracas is really the earthquake resulting from the realignment of these tribal tectonic plates underneath the legacy states that traditionally administered the buckling terrain, which is why so many citizens of Western democracies are contemplating some political other, an other nominally part of their own citizenry, and asking themselves, who the fuck are those people, and why am I sharing political power with them? The underlying tension between online tribes and now-dated political unions will persist, however, until either the physical borders are redrawn to reflect the virtual ones, for example, Brexit, various secessionist murmurs among U.S. states, or we somehow manage to unwrap ourselves from our online personas, unlikely. The pro-regulation crowd who argue Facebook is a utility and therefore should be regulated like one, aren't half wrong. We'd no sooner part from our online identities at this point than we would from electricity or running water. Somewhat counterintuitively, the only people who will manage a genuine version of this newfound luxury called community will be either the very wealthy, who live on their own terms within mutually selected groups, or the very poor, who need real-world mutual support to survive. What's the alternative? Some will retreat to atavistic revivals of earlier living arrangements, the organic farm, the militia compound, the anchorite Benedict option. Footnote. The Benedict option, introduced in a book by noted conservative writer and editor and Orthodox Christian Rod Dreher, is the notion that traditionalist Christians should opt to abandon post-modernity and live in enclosed communities. It's an active rejection of what they perceive as a corrupt and venal society. It's not really monasticism in the usual sense, but it's inspired by the Benedictines and their repudiation of society. End footnote. There'll be escapees, for sure. But like so many things in our coming dysfunction, most will be forced to resort to a knockoff copy of an erstwhile original. And that's where Facebook will thrive as a crutch, the opiate of the socially precarious and atomized masses, the band-aid on the social wound that's festered to bursting.
Zuckerberg, that genius, was correct in his vision of a more open and connected world and is relentlessly capable of making it a reality. He's also right that Facebook will serve as the societal stopgap, faute de mieux. Facebook will provide the makeshift community for those whose worlds are being destroyed around them, even as it serves as megaphone for those doing the destroying. Which side wins will be the battle of our age. May 2018 Hi, I'm Stephen Levy, the editor-in-chief of Back Channel, and I've got here Antonio Garcia Martinez. He's been a strategist at Goldman Sachs, uh, CEO and co-founder of AdGrok, product manager of Facebook, advisor to Twitter. But most of all, and why we're here, is he's the author of Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. And uh, it's going to be fun to talk to him. Hi, Antonio. Hello, Stephen. So why did you write this book? Uh, That's a good question, because many would think that I'm committing career suicide by writing it. Um, You know, just to get philosophical for a moment, right? History is what the present owes the future as it becomes the past, right, I feel. And... One of the most notable and, and, and one of the most notable things about Silicon Valley is that nobody's sort of writing those histories, right? Everyone in Silicon Valley lives in what I like to call the eternal present, right? It's it's the urgent now of the next startup or the next cool technology or the next fundraising round or the next media event, right? And then you wake up tomorrow and then it's another startup and another idea. No one ever kind of pulls back pulls back and thinks, you know, what are they gonna think of us in ten years or hundred years or whatever? Which is really weird because I think we live and I say this sincerely, I think we live in, in exceptional times. Uh, you know, a century or two from now, people will look back at our present and hold it in the same sort of esteem that they hold the Industrial Revolution, the discovery of the printing press, the age of sale, whatever, right? We're living, um, uh, you know, through the times in which all of human information became searchable, when all of social interaction became mediated via computers and algorithms, right? And I think people are going to ask questions about what was it like when that that actually happened. And so, you know, at the very highest, noblest level, recording that that historical process is why I wrote the book. Well, you did it, as you mentioned, in a pretty unmediated fashion, one which uh, is probably going to ruffle some feathers there. Uh, as a matter of fact, we were talking at one point earlier about doing pieces of this uh, on Back Channel, and I was going to call the series, You'll Never Eat Free Lunch in This Town Again. Uh, do you think you're going to be blackballed by this? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think... <laughs> Very possibly to the extent that, you know, I have a tech career left in the Valley. It'll be sort of demolished with this book. Um, I, I, t- to be honest, though, to be a little bit more, more studied about it, I think there's going to be two reactions to it. I think, um, one, there's going to be the reaction from, you know, the Facebook founder, early employee, who's going to be extraordinarily antagonistic to it, or the sort of VC or anyone really sort of really vested as part of the, and part of the sort of Silicon Valley establishment, who's going to look at it and say, no, Antonio's crazy. He's wrong. I mean, maybe that was his chaotic, weird life, but that's that's not the Silicon Valley I know, and basically disavow the book at all and just pretend it doesn't exist. And then I think there's going to be the reaction of, say, you know, the mid-level or junior-level Facebook employee, what I was at Facebook, or, you know, the scarred veteran of many a startup who's kind of, like, not believing in the fairy tale anymore, who's going to read it, see what is basically a portrait of their own lives and laugh like hell. That's what, so I think it's going to be basically one of two reactions to the book. So your view of Silicon Valley seems to be it's kind of a den of scoundrels, and you don't exempt yourself from this, uh, by the way. Uh, yet there's a moment late in the book where you drop that pose for a second and say how you were drinking the Kool-Aid yourself. You were working at Facebook, and you really believed in this ad product you were working on, and you really wanted to help Facebook succeed with this ad product there, and you're putting all, you're all into it there. Tell me about that. Uh, How swept up did you get uh, in the Silicon Valley ethos while at the same time uh, looking at a lot of things around you with a jaundiced eye? Right. Like I think I say in the book, inside every cynic is a heartbroken idealist, right? And so if, if I look at the Silicon Valley world with such a jaundiced eye, it's precisely because I, I, I at one point believed in it. What I, what I didn't want to have a, as the persona um, uh, of the protagonist, and, 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 and there is a persona. Well, I mean, everything in the book is true, and it all happened, and it, it's mostly how I perceived it. I've definitely hammed up this persona of the sort of swaggering rapscallion who's sort of running amok through the, through the Silicon Valley world, um, which, which I kind of did, I guess, for a number of years. 
but but that rapscallion did kind of believe, um, and, and more than kind of believed. I mean, I did believe. I wore a little Facebook fleece every day. I lived at Facebook. I believed in the mission. I was as much a rank-and-file trooper as anybody else. Of course, I was disabused of that opinion as I saw sort of the reality. But, um, but no, I, I absolutely was a believer, no question. So I mentioned before you didn't spare yourself. Uh, and in this persona, um, I'm wondering, you took some risks and you actually portrayed yourself in some ways as not a very likable person there. Uh, tell me about that. Do you have thoughts about that, particularly in to- the way you portrayed your personal life as well as the way you portrayed yourself in your dealings with uh, your colleagues and co-founders? Yeah, no, I mean, it's... Um... When you write a memoir, you're forced to reflect on yourself in, in all sorts of various ways. I mean, one way is a sort of emotional and sort of spiritual sense of how did I feel about that. The other is just the mechanics of going back through the email and messages and text and actually um, looking what your actions were like back in the day. And I, there's a line in the book in which I say, you know, if if the older you could go back to the younger you, you know, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be giving sort of encouragement and, and kind words. You'd actually be spewing, you know, insults, hurling insults, basically. Um, and, and that's what I kind of feel has been, was a lot of my behavior throughout that period, right? I mean, you mentioned the personal thing. Um, you know, I assume the listener has read the book. Um, you know, I had two illegitimate children with a woman that I didn't know very well, uh, throughout the course of the startup. Uh, one was born right before the startup got, was funded and the other was born, well, conceived right as the company was getting bought and then born as I started the Facebook side of the, uh, side of the book. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, again, I... I, you know, I'm 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 very satirical. I'm very critical. I mock a lot of people in the book, but I I like to think the the thing that gives me the path that lets me do that is that I train the same satirical and mocking on myself as I do as everyone else around me. Because at the end of the day, we were all complicit in the same sort of charade and the same sort of hypocrisy of of Silicon Valley life. And so, you know, as as part of that, yeah, I mean, a lot of the behavior around, uh, I mean, my the children that were born. Although, I mean, you know, things are more or less okay now. Um, you know, having a office tryst with a coworker, um, you know, ignoring a woman who fell in love with me for the sake of, you know, pursuing the cause at Facebook, you know, it's, it's all there. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of all of that, frankly. I think readers would want to know, did these women read the book? Did they get to take a look at it? <laughs> you know, it's probably the number one question beyond the technology or Silicon Valley or any of it. Um, well, in the case of the mother of uh, of the first two children, um, she some of that material was actually published in a blog post for Adgrok, which she vetted. Yeah, you sent me a, a, a copy of that post the first time I met you in 2010. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that was sort of the person I was back then. Um, yeah, so she, I mean, she's definitely vetted the spirit of it. I think she's a little wary. I, I've not shown anybody, uh, anybody, whether it be the women, my coworker, anybody, uh, my previous version of the book, because I think it would just end up being this this fiasco of edits and requests and favors and backs and forth. So they've not actually read it. But, you know, obviously I, I don't use their real names. And, uh, you know, again, if I apply that same sardonic eye to them, I apply it to myself as much as I do them. And, and hopefully everything is at least fair, even if they find it, you know, somewhat intrusive into their personal lives. Are you investing in a bodyguard either to protect yourself from them or from some of the people at Facebook? <laughs> Well, like I've joked online before, uh, Facebook wouldn't actually hire assassins to kill me. They'd just delete my Facebook account and consider that tantamount to physical death. <laughs> so I really, you know, it, Facebook at the end of the day is a mobile app and a website. It's not the uh, the Mexican mob or the Mossad, right? I don't think I'm going to have to be looking over my shoulder anytime soon. Well, that's good to hear. Um, so what what advice do you have to someone who's looking at Silicon Valley, excited about participating in this, coming there to make their fortune? Um, are you are you warning them against it, or are you saying all you have to do is uh, just get, get down in the mud and do it? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I think of the book as a cautionary tale, or at the very least, a, a how-not-to guide. Um, I'm not so naive to think as, just to cite one of my sort of literary forebears, Michael Lewis, when he wrote Liar's Poker, which is a similar book to this. It was him as a relatively young bond salesman in Solomon Brothers in the 80s. And he wrote it to dissuade people going to finance. And of course, like anything, you know, you don't think of a rabbit and you think of a rabbit. It, it was actually the siren song, like the sort of gateway drug to finance. In fact, it was for me. I mean, the, one of the uh, initial chapters in the book is me watching the financial meltdown happen in Goldman Sachs. And the reason why I ended up at Goldman Sachs from the sort of hippie scientist life at Berkeley was precisely because I read Michael Lewis's book, right? 
And so uh, I suspect this book, you know, if it gets any real traction at all, it'll, it'll induce people to, to go to Silicon Valley. So I'm, I'm not going to say don't go to Silicon Valley because look, look how horrible, uh, you know, an experience you can have. In terms of concrete advice, I think I'd have two, two pieces of advice. One is, and, and it's very tactical, right? But if, if, if you get a job in a startup, right, here's how Silicon Valley works. And this is so central. It's actually on the back jacket of the book, right? Investors are people with more um, money than time. Employees are people with more time than money. And entrepreneurs are the sort of seductive go-between that trade the investor's money for the employee's time and creates a company, right? That, that's basically at, at heart how, how the Silicon Valley startup machine works. If you come in as an employee, then um, the way you need to think about it is that you actually need to think about it like an investor, right? Because what you do by working in a startup is you basically earn the right to invest. Literally, this is financially exactly what you earn the right to invest in the company at the valuation at the last fundraising round. That's literally the right that you earn as part of your compensation in a startup. And so when you work at that company, the question you need to ask yourself is, if someone put a gun to my head right now and said, look, to keep on working here, you need to write us a check for $100,000 or go away. That's the question you need to be asking yourself. And, and the reason why is because, of course, people, you know, and, I, and I, by the way, I, f- I fell into the same trap and I didn't learn this until later. You know, people budget their money and, and they're used to playing the, the, the economic game and they know about opportunity cost and saving money here to spend it there. But when it comes to time, I think their attitudes change and they don't realize that actually time is the most valuable commodity. Money will come and go. I've, you know, made and lost. I didn't want to think about how much money I, I would have made if I had stayed at Facebook, right? But time is a thing that you really can't regain. And so before you invest a year or two in a company, think about whether you'd really actually invest your money and, and more into that company or not. That's one piece of advice for the person who's just getting a job in a, in a Silicon Valley startup. I think the other piece of advice is, you know, if, if you really feel you have that entrepreneurial itch, if you really want to roll the dice, if you really want to play with the big boys, then do it. Um, you, you shouldn't hesitate. You shouldn't think, well, you shouldn't look at the glossy cover of Fortune and see Drew Houston of Dropbox or the guys from Airbnb, whoever else, and think, oh, those people are a class apart. Um, you know, I definitely approached it with a very reverential attitude early on. I, you know, I didn't found a startup until I was, God, what age was I? I don't want to do the math right now. It'll make me seem old. But, you know, already at least five years into professional career after grad school, um, you know, people aren't necessarily born entrepreneurs. Frankly, I think you need to learn about a certain industry or, or, or domain before you actually even go into it. But if you feel that itch, then you should do it. You should apply to Y Combinator or whatever else. Find the team that you can work with and do it because uh, we always regret the things we don't do more than the things that we do. So you mentioned Y Combinator. Uh, it's grown hugely since you uh, went through the program, I think, in 2010. Um, you know, like a, by a big multiple there. Um, and that's sort of symbolic of how the startup scene has grown there. Do you think it's out of hand? Or are we in a big bubble now? Uh, do you mean Y Combinator in particular or Silicon Valley in general? Well, I, I, Silicon Valley, really, with Y Combinator as a symbol of that. I mean, Y Combinator, which is part of the book, by the way, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good chunk of the book, you know, is, is near and dear to my heart. So I don't, want, I don't know that I necessarily want to equate it with Silicon Valley because I'll say many good things about Y Combinator and, and not necessarily good things about Silicon Valley. But I, but I think you are right that, that Y Combinator is a bellwether of the general thing. And, and you're right. When I, when, I, when I went through Y Combinator in summer of 2010, there were 35 companies in the batch, which I think was the biggest batch they had had. And, you know, everyone was acting as if it was huge, which it, which it kind of was. And now, and I'm not sure what the most recent batch is. You probably have a better idea than I do. But I think it's, it's pushing 100 companies, if not more. Over, over 100. Over, yeah. It's like it's 130 over. last time. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I go to the demo days and I lose count sometimes. How it's the the how long there? Um, yeah, no. I think I, yeah, to some degree, Y Combinator is representative. Like Y Combinator used to be the product of one man's sort of lone genius, Paul Graham, who is the sort of startup guru, and and was this very sort of homebrewed thing of him with his partner friends, and he scaled it up to be this sort of institution run by Sam Altman, who also went through the program and was a mentor to Agrock. Actually, he's in the book. And, you know, what I think Paul Graham and Sam are trying to do is make Y Combinator truly be a startup machine, have it be an institution that lasts longer than, than one individual. Um, you know, I think that the example that, that PG, uh, Paul Graham cited in one of his blog posts was, you know, look at universities, right? They last longer than most companies. Companies will last maybe a century or two at most and then sort of die. But we've had universities that have been around for almost a millennium, right? And so he's trying to create a sort of, a, you know, um, uh, a set of learnings and an institution that'll survive his involvement in it and sort of go on and just produce startups endlessly. And, and, and I think that, that that might be symbolic of Silicon Valley itself, right? And that Silicon Valley is now this innovation machine. It's now one of the most, you know, dynamic elements of 
the U.S. economy. It's drawing talent from around the world. And um, yeah, it's just this machine that sucks in money and people and ambition and spits out Airbnb and Dropbox and Pinterest. And that's, that's what it is. Yeah. So you spend a lot of time explaining how digital ads work and programmatic ads and, uh, and how these things pop up on your screen, whether you're using Facebook or doing other things there. Um, so what are your thoughts on how privacy shakes out with all this data being used uh, uh, to produce ads uh, on Facebook and other services we use? I mean, this is going to be absolutely heretical, and people will hate me for saying it. But um, there's a chapter in the book called The Narcissism of Privacy. And uh, it's titled that for a reason. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> it, it sounds terrible, but um, it, I, I do think that a lot of what we, call, what we now call privacy is a form of narcissism in the sense that we jealously guard this thing that we feel that we need to protect from the outside world. And in some sense, our right to protect it is almost like a constitutional right. Um, as I cite in the book, and it's slightly off color, but um, you know, even if Facebook had a video of you engaging in indecent acts, um, along with you know, a voiceover of someone reading your deepest, darkest secrets from childhood, even if Facebook had that, and even assuming perfectly evil behavior on Facebook's behalf, they wouldn't know what to do with it. They wouldn't care, basically. It has no commercial interest. And I think the problem, the reason why people get very defensive about privacy in the context of Facebook is that they, they sort of miss, they misunderstand how advertising actually works, and they think the data that, or, or you know, the knowledge that they'd most jealously guard, you know, I don't know, the fact that they had an incestuous relationship with their sister when they were 10 or something, would actually be commercially interesting to everybody. And that's, that's a major fallacy that they don't understand. Nobody actually cares. Of course, what they want to know is, what TV show did you see on Netflix? What was your last car? What make and model? And how many miles does it have on it? Uh, when you last walked into a Best Buy, what did you look at on the shelf? That's what they want, actually. And so I think there's this major sort of discrepancy between what people feel protective about and what the sort of advertising world actually needs in order to basically fund the internet for free, which is what which is the point of advertising. And so I think a lot of the sort of static and noise around and the bad rap that Facebook gets is this basic misunderstanding about how advertising actually works. And part of the reason why, um, you know, there's a couple, a good couple chapters in there in which, you know, in a very high-level Malcolm Gladwell sort of way, I try to explain how data actually turns into money in, you know, the advertising ecosystem to try to convey that in some sense what people are worrying about, they really don't need to worry about. Um, and, and not in any sort of paternalistic, oh, don't worry, Facebook will take care of you sort of way. It's just like, here's the harsh reality. Nobody cares about your secret grandma's, you know, uh, you know, uh, brownie recipe. <laughs> Facebook isn't trying to get that out of your messages. Um, and so, I mean, th- that's, th- that's one point on privacy. The other is, what is the future of privacy? What does it mean? You know, I'll quote Nick Denton, who I don't like quoting. He's the, the founder of Gawker and sort of a social media gadfly. But he said something very good in the interview he did for Playboy a couple years ago. In the future, we're only going to have one sin, and that sin is hypocrisy. And by that he meant, you know, you're one thing or one persona in private and what you keep from the world, and you're another in public, the public persona you face to the world. And it doesn't matter what you're into, what weird, deviant, whatever that you're into, as long as you're honest about it and, and you know, you sort of wear it on your sleeve and it's part of you, then the world won't judge you for it, right? And I think that's the reality of the world that we're, head, that we're heading to, right? Like we now use words like oversharing. In the future, your entire personal life will just be known as a matter of fact. And in fact, there's going to be so much personal data on Facebook. Like I challenge the listeners, if you're fearing that photo that was taken seven years ago when you were drunk at some happy hour thing, just go ahead and even try to find it on your own timeline. I bet you can't find it. And I know this because I had to go back and find photos for – uh, excerpts of the book that were only four or five years ago. And here's former Facebook or former power user, and I couldn't find the damn things. And so the reality is that either there's no data and you literally live like a hermit or you know a Bond villain, or there's so much data that you need the computing power of the NSA to find anything. And the reality is that we're going to get lost in the crowd. And you know that drunk photo of you at the happy hour will be no more embarrassing to you than your choice of jacket this morning when you walked out. Right. That's just part of you, and really nobody cares about it. Of course, you're going to say that. I already know from reading the book that you had sex in a closet at Facebook. <laughs> well, hold on. No, well, that's not, I mean, that, that, but that's not strictly speaking true. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, there was, there was a, yes, there was a little thing there. Yeah, that's right. 
So what what are your thoughts on Facebook now? Well, I'm still a huge user of it. I'm still, to some degree, addicted to it. Um, Facebook, I mean, the mean, company. Facebook, the people uh, you the work company. with. Um, the the <clears throat> just do you, do you respect it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I hope in the book that there's. I mean, it's not even a grudging respect. I think there's a, there's a very overt respect. I mean, I, as I as the, what's going to get serialized in, in Vanity Fair in a month. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is a genius, and I really do think that. And the company he's created is a sort of institutional genius in a huge way. And so, yeah, I, I very much respect the company, very much so. Of course, like any large organization, I mean, uh, you know, there's bozos, there's frauds, there's politics, there's nepotism, there's stupidity. I mean, there's – and that's all in the book. Um, but in general, no, I, I absolutely respect Facebook and um, the coworkers that I work with there, um, not the ones that are flagged as sort of the bad guys in the book – um, you know, the peers that with, with whom I built Facebook Exchange or that I, I built the targeting system or whatever, you know, are some of the people that I had the best work or, you know, professional interactions with ever. And, and it's frankly some of the best engineers and technologists that I've, that I've ever met. And, and that's the reality. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm the first to point out that, you know, often when we talk about these companies, be it Facebook or Dropbox, we all engage in what's called the narrative fallacy. And, I'll, and again, I'll, I'll quote somebody who I also don't like, um, Nassim Taleb, he of uh, Black Swan fame who said, uh, you know, the narrative fallacy is this need for the human brain to believe that if C happened, it's because of B, and if B happened, it's because of A, and that basically what happens in Act 2 of the play is because of Act 1, and there's some moral order to the universe, right? And so we look at all these tech, tech companies. This is basically tech journalism in a nutshell, with the exception of people like you, Stephen, who can actually do research and kind of look through the narrative fallacy. But in yeah, general... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Most, no, it's, I actually believe that. Um, but um, most tech journalists, they just swallow the narrative fallacy whole. And, you know, some company that has had some, uh, you know, some huge success, they'll assume that that went from, you know, a visionary product ideation to steely-eyed product execution to then, you know, uh, you know, canny business implementation. And boom, you're on the cover of Fortune. That's just how it works. And frankly, all the dead bodies, all the accidents, all the flailing, that all gets swept under the rug and hidden. Um, and so, I, I, so I, what this book is endeavoring to do is, while at the same time praising Facebook, also shining a light a little bit on all the crazy stuff that happened inside, that, that frankly is just the reality. Again, getting back to my point about hypocrisy, I think it's time for a company to be a little bit more transparent and kind of show a little bit more about what happens in private and how they actually got where they are, and that it's maybe not quite the story that you read inside Fortune. <laughs> Just out, of, just out of curiosity, do you have any holdings in any Silicon Valley stocks now? Uh, so, no, it's funny. And this is a major mistake, by the way. I, um, I actually sold everything in Facebook uh, basically the moment after I left uh, when it was something like 30 or something, which was a horrible mistake, obviously, in retrospect. Um, uh, which is funny. You might think, like, if you were an insider, why did you make that mistake? It's like, well, like all of Facebook, we didn't, I didn't see the whole mobile shift coming. Um, basically, one or two quarters after I left – uh, like uh, mobile became half of Facebook usage and has only gone up from there. I think in their most recent report that came out a couple of weeks ago, it's 83% of usage, which is a massive title shift that nobody saw coming. And so uh, short answer to your question, no, I have no Facebook holdings. Sold the moment I left. I think right now I have some sector ETFs that might indirectly hold Facebook if it's, um, if it's a tech ETF, but I, I, I don't really punt around much on the markets and I, I don't have any direct holdings in Facebook. So, final question: What what do you do now? Are you are you just going to sail around the world, or do you think you'll <laughs> you'll be working at a tech company? Um, maybe not in Silicon Valley, or maybe someone hasn't read the book. Uh, yeah, in the future. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, as as I mentioned towards the uh, the closing of the, the epilogue of the book, I mean, the fact that you mentioned the sailing, I guess you, you've actually read the entire thing. Um, towards the end of the story, and it was originally a chapter, but it got it got cut. Um, my mother somewhat unexpectedly died of liver cancer, and so. Um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm sure lots of people have had these encounters of mortality. I mean, you don't really sort of wrestle with that existential question at the heart of human life until you're actually staring at in the grave. And I had this experience there, you know, hanging out for weeks in the cancer ward of like, um, of what what would I most regret, basically, if I were stuck in this situation instead of my mother? And only two things came up. One is, you know, publishing and writing this book that I'd been sort of kicking around for years, um, which is why we're talking now. And then the other, of course, was sailing around the world, something that I've had, it's a, been a dream of mine since I was a child, and I've fitted out three different boats to, to one or other degree for, for offshore sailing. And uh, that's kind of, in my mind, the one thing that I have left. And so I think before ever diving back into the startup mosh pit, assuming they'd have me, I think the uh, sailing around the world thing, um, or at least across an ocean, is what's going to happen next after all this book madness is over. 
Well, uh, bon voyage. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, and, th- and thanks so much for talking to me, and uh, I, en- I enjoyed it. And the book is, uh, which I think the listeners have just heard, Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. This is Dan John Miller. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley by Antonio Garcia Martinez. Presented by HarperCollins and Harper Audio. This program was produced by Common Mode, Paul Fowley, Technical Director. Executive Producer, Iris McElroy. Copyright 2016-2018 by Antonio Garcia Martinez. Production Copyright 2018 by HarperCollins Publishers. All rights reserved. Thank you for listening.